Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's NDP leader is asking for forgiveness. This comes after she walked back comments she made opposing mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for education workers. The question is, has the damage already been done? Quebec is set to implement a COVID vaccine passport system as cases continue to tick up. This happens as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also talks about making vaccinations mandatory for some federally regulated industries. Are we finally moving in the right direction? And a proposed expansion of Hamilton's urban boundary is back on the discussion table. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath has walked back comments that she actually made just the other day in which she opposed mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for education workers. Uh, it's a real mess that she's developed right now. Global's Camille Calamari has all the details. On Wednesday, during a television interview, NDP leader Andrea Horvath stood firmly against mandatory vaccinations for frontline workers, including teachers, citing charter rights, and instead pushed for rapid virus tests for unvaccinated workers. On Wednesday, I made a mistake. 24 hours later, a complete U-turn. I fully support mandatory vaccination in healthcare and education, suggesting a mandatory vaccine policy during a global pandemic should take a backseat to charter rights. I regret the comment. I was wrong. But the damage, perhaps already done. Looking to capitalize, Ontario's Liberal leader tied Horvath to Premier Doug Ford. The sorry spectacle of witnessing Andrea Horvath and the NDP team up with Doug Ford and the Conservatives to try to appease that anti-vaxxer element that we have in this society of ours. While the Liberals and Greens have stood in favour of mandatory vaccinations for frontline workers, Ford has said the opposite. I think it's their constitutional right to take it or not take it. Well, uh, so therein lies the problem. And uh, I guess the biggest question a lot of us have right now is what are the political consequences of this, uh, quite aside from vaccination or not vaccination. Joining us to talk about this is Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. I'm glad you could jump on with us today. I'm I, I just flummoxed by this. I mean, we we've, we will see politicians flip-flop on issues. We get that. Usually not within a 24-hour period and not this dramatic. Well, the backlash on this was massive. Uh, I'm, I'm on a road trip across Canada, as you probably know, yeah. and uh, I, my phone just couldn't stop the other night, you know, because it was just, it was amazing to see the response so quick coming, not just from, you know, local supporters of Andrea, people who support the NDP were weighing in. Of course, the Liberals were like, what has happened here? Uh, then you had the federal NDP res- some response to it. So it was just going and going and going. And, and it was a, and it was a united against the fact that she and the NDP have represented so much uh, over the past few months when you think of their advocacy on LTC, this protection of the vulnerable, this, this need to make sure that there's vaccinations. And then all of a sudden we have her come out and say on power and politics, well, you know, well, we don't support mandatory vaccination for education workers. And there are two things that are happening, Bill, that made this story so big and the moment by Andrea so unfortunate, such an unforced error. One is that we are seeing changing in policy on mandatory vaccination almost hourly. Uh, just uh, an hour ago, United Airlines announced that they're going to have mandatory vaccination policy. You're seeing businesses and governments across the U.S. start to do it across the world. So you've got that momentum happening on the issue. And then you've got rising cases of children being hospitalized because of the Delta variant in the United States. It's becoming a serious risk for children under 12 that we have the science now on what this variant can do to children. And so you have parents who are having to send their kids back to school in a couple of weeks, who kids who cannot get vaccinated because of their age into an environment that could be dangerous for them. And the adults, who can get vaccinated might opt out of it. And so you have this anger of Ontario parents saying, for heaven's sakes, if the premier is going to you know, cater to an anti-vaxxer base and say vaccines are a constitutional right, you at least hope that the NDP and the Liberals are going to speak out for the unvaccinated populations. And so this is where Andrea missed the moment, missed the mark, and as much as she did do her, you know, her pretty good video taking accountability for it, it really showed that she was trying to have it both ways on the issue. And that's not a great look for a leader. There's a couple of things about this. So let's go back 
to the to the beginning, to the first statement, if we could, for just a second, uh, which caught me off guard, and I'm sure an awful lot of other people too, because it, it's such an un-NDP-like statement for her to make, uh, essentially suggesting that she's being on side with, as you say, the Jason Kennys, the Doug Fords, and others who simply say, no, you know, it's a choice, it's a it's a charter rights, all this sort of thing. Those are the talking points that you get from anti-vaxxers, and I, I I was shocked, frankly, that she said that in the first place. Well, it was shocking, you know, and you saw uh, the federal NDP, Charlie Angus, have to take down a tweet saying that that kind of idiocy is essentially handing over the election, which I'm sure we'll get to. But what was shocking about it was that that talking point, I mean, if in fact there's going to be challenges to vaccination mandates, they will go to the court. But we have other things that we have, we are mandated to prove. We have to give vaccination records to get our kids into school currently, you know, whether or not they've had their boosters or whatever. We have to show our age. Uh, we have to have licenses to drive. We have to show ages to get alcohol. I mean, we live in a society that has regulations to protect the greater good. And so I think for many Canadians, in fact, a, a poll just came out, of course, that said that a majority of Canadians, I think 54% are for vaccine mandates, another 20-something are, are open to the issue, which is a pretty big, significant number. So you've got many Canadians who are fully vaccinated who are saying, yeah, you know what? I have to have a license to drive. I have to have a license to get alcohol, I have to be of a certain age, why not have have to have some sort of way to be able to safely engage with other citizens? So that's why Andrea's comments were, were pretty shocking and throwing out this idea of, you know, the fact that it's, it's charter rights. I mean, that's the piece she really had to take back the next day and say for her to suggest that charter rights somehow trump public safety considerations in a pandemic was wrong. My question is, why did it take this blowback for her to understand that? And I think that's where a lot of people still have questions this morning. So it took tremendous pressure and anger from all sides for you to realize that a significant policy in a pandemic was wrong. What was the thinking going up to her statement originally on power and politics? And again, it seems so contrary to, as you mentioned, the things that she's been talking about, about, you know, protecting the the vulnerable, protecting frontline workers, uh, as she did with long-term care facilities and and so many others, and especially in the schools. Uh, That that just blew a lot of people away, and we saw the pushback on that. Uh, By the way, the poll that you referenced, Laura, we should remind our listeners, uh, uh, they did not say, are you going to get vaccinated? That's a separate poll. This says, basically what this poll says, not only am I going to get vaccinated, but I want to make sure that when I go into a restaurant or go to a ball game, the people around me are vaccinated vaccinated too and if not they shouldn't be there that's a pretty strong statement and as you say when you add those numbers together it's almost 70 percent of the people that were asked about this said yes we believe in a vaccine passports and we just uh, heard of course the quebec premier is installing something like this uh, mayor de blasio in new york city is putting a, a policy in place like this uh, so for her to jump in and go on the total opposite side was just totally bizarre but then came the recanting and now you've been dealing with politicians uh with power group for many many years now and you understand that there are some nuances that they all have to understand. They all have talking points before they do an interview, such as she did, where she made this statement. Who the hell was she listening to to actually go on the air and, and make a statement like this? And all of a sudden, who does she listen to to try to say, okay, i got to get out of this? Well, she's 12 years in as a leader, so you hope that she's listening to her own leadership abilities at this stage, which is, I think, what part of what is gobsmacking about this, is she's a professional, right? And so there are a number of things that were errant about what she did. The first one was she obviously came into the interview uh, without strong footing on the position. And, and let me just state for the record, I mean, the liberal policy provincially that they're putting out, that they're pro-mandates but not enforcing them, I mean, they're also trying to have it both ways. And oh, sure. We yeah. all know Ford policy. So I just want to make that clear. Every politician seems to try to want to, you know, promote vaccination but not do the hard part, right? So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see them all have to step up their game in terms of what are, they, what are the real priorities in this crisis with the Delta variant. So having said that, she goes in on an unsteady footing where she's trying to essentially say, yeah, yeah, vaccine, vaccine, vulnerable, vulnerable, but but charter rights are, are more important than that, right? And so at that moment, she actually touches her face. And it's kind of like when you swipe your nose uh, or cover your face, it's kind of think of it like a Roman shield going up to protect yourself, right? It's kind of a, sometimes it can be an unconscious body language signal that you're not terribly comfortable with what you're saying she does that and then you see her try to do media training 101 which is pivot to strength go to a better issue go on attack go to something else but she she rambles like really all over the place for another painful minute and 30 seconds 
And you can just watch her trying to figure out how to end the conversation, how to bring it back. She knew from watching it, she knew she was in some kind of trouble after she had made the comment. So what that begs the question, Bill, is... Uh, when you say who was she listening to, there's, you know, they're saying there was some upheaval in caucus. And I don't think you even need to know the behind the scenes. You just look at the front scenes that she was getting on social media. She clearly looked at everything and said, wow, this was a major misstep. Sat down and said, I, you know, she was a little off at the beginning when she said, I should have been more clear about the policy. No, no, you were pretty clear. You were just yeah. wrong. <laughs> right? So that was spin and that didn't go over well. But then she went on to say, I made a mistake, etc. So at the point where you're 12 years in. I think that people rightly expect a leader to know their own mind, to have had plenty of time to consider this issue, to be watching how things are moving and changing in this pandemic. There is some forgiveness for a leader who admits mistakes. There is some forgiveness for not getting it right every time in a moving issue like a pandemic. But that idea of trying to initially kind of spin it back as she hadn't, she'd lacked clarity, it wasn't a lack of clarity. It was a, a poor position that she took that needed to be fixed right away. I know that's part of your job with Power Group to, to do those assessments, but you're right, body language can speak volumes, can't it? And and that was pretty evident, anybody who watched the video of this. I mean, we, we played the audio, of course, a number of times on the program over the last 24 hours, but to actually see the body language, uh, I, I agree with you. She, she looked very uncomfortable saying, which begs the question, why did you do it? But you're, you're, And she immediately pivoted over to take a shot at, at Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, which I guess she figured, okay, this is an opportunity to score political points. That's the kind of silly gamesmanship you see question period uh this is an offer an opportunity rather it was an opportunity for her to have you know the, the stage to herself to be able to state her policies and instead she wanted to start playing politics with it and it came back and bit her well because the the initial comment that she made was a political uh, a weak political stance to begin with right say something is right to do but you know there's there's an overriding principle that makes it something that you're not going to ask people to do as a leader people want leadership they want people to say you know what this is what is right to do this is the job i have is to lead this is the ethical i mean 50 organiz 50 medical organizations in the united states have put out statements saying that vaccination is the ethical choice it, it shouldn't be that big of a leap unless you're pandering to an anti-vaxxer narrative which is we both know very dangerous mm -hmm. um then then you should have a clear policy on it. So she came across as, as being unsure and a rather weak argument. And then she did what you, you're trained to do. You know, I train people, you know, you got to pivot to something you're strong on if you're in a weak position, but you don't go on and on. She could not land the attacks against Ford or the liberal leader. They weren't strong enough. And it was just, you know, painful is the word I've seen most used on social media by people who know her, like her, supporters of NDP, and even other political observers who are nonpartisan. So you have to wonder, what was the pressure leading into that interview? Who was she listening to? And then that makes people question, well, who is the NDP beholden to? That she would go out there and make a statement that seemed incongruous with her values and her previously stated opinions on issues around the pandemic. And that is, I think, where voters are going to start to make the calculation that might be more damaging to her. And there's also, of course, the leadership issue going into the next provincial election. Does this, you know, what will be the consequences for her because she had an unforced error of this magnitude? on such a key issue to the election. Well, what are the possibilities? And, and, and let's cover some of those. I mean, you know, with time, and, and again, Laura, uh, when you've been on the program, talked about the, the popularity of the leaders, which doesn't necessarily translate into the popularity for the party. And the, the, the head scratcher for an awful lot of people is every time they poll, Andrea Horvath scores pretty well uh, when it comes to, hey, which leaders do you like best? But it has never translated into votes come election time. Uh, an example of what we just saw over the last 24 hours might be an indication as to why that's happening. Uh, they, You know, this, is, this was all about leadership. Leadership. And this was all about showing, you know, I'm, I'm ready to lead in a time of crisis like that. And I think a lot of people, including, uh, as you mentioned on social media, a lot of NDP folks are, are starting to question that leadership now. Yeah, and that's why I think it's more dangerous. I mean, you're going to have the pile on from the conservatives and the opportunism of the liberals. And, you know, we're sure. coming into an election. Let's not mistake what's going on. But when I when I cut through the noise of all the partisan hacks who were out there screaming the last 24 hours, uh, there was those who are true NDPers who are just disheartened or surprised or a little shocked or wondering, you know, has she run her course? And I've always looked at it this way, you know, that the liberals might bring out the long knives in the back. The conservatives seem to stab you right from the front very quickly mm -hmm. in leadership. And then the NDPs tend to let you live there for a long, long time. They don't get rid of their leaders very quickly. There isn't a sense that the party kind of turns on leaders and uh, has internecine kind of battles. But at 12 years, 
I mean, I remember when she won the last, when she won the role of official opposition, and she did that speech in Hamilton where she said, official opposition! You know, there were other people who looked at that and said, really, that was the goal? I mean, are you really a leader or are you just a critic? And I think that this shows, to your point, she's very affable and very um, empathetic and people really like her, but does she show the quality to lead with clarity of thought and communication in the big moments? And and this this hurts her in that regard. June of next year is uh, the next provincial election, and uh, we'll see just how long this fallout lasts. Uh, As always, Laura, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, Continue with the vacation now uh, (laughs) for the rest of the weekend anyway, and uh, enjoy yourself, and we'll watch for the stuff on Facebook. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. And uh, as I mentioned, this is the kind of stuff that she does with Power Group, is uh, talk about crisis management with corporations and with political and public figures. And uh, it seems as if uh, Andrea Horvath may need a little help in that regard. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The national polling that indicate that a majority of Canadians are in favor of vaccine passports, not just getting vaccinated, but vaccine passports. In other words, you know, if proof of vaccination to be able to go to a, a ball game or to go to a restaurant, whatever the case might be. Not too many political leaders, though, seem to uh, have the wherewithal to actually follow up on that. Uh, one of the exceptions probably is Quebec Premier Francois Legault, who announced uh, yesterday that his government will impose a vaccine passport system following a rise in COVID-19 infections in that province. Uh, Premier Legault says that Health Minister Christian Dubé is then going to announce the details in coming days about how the system is going to work and where it will begin. Now, the Premier says experts believe the province is at the beginning of a fourth wave of COVID-19 fueled by more transmissible Delta variants. We've heard that story before, but this Premier has decided to act on it. Here's what he had to say. We'll put in place the uh, passport in order that people who made the efforts to be vaccinated, that they uh, are able to come back to a normal life. So it means that some services will, uh, non-essential services, will be available only to vaccinated uh, people. A uh, number of other premiers don't seem to want to go down that road. Uh, the Quebec premier certainly uh, blazing a trail, I guess, that not too many of the folks uh, dare to go on. Uh, joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Daniel Bailand, who is a uh, James McGill Professor of Political Science and the Director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada at McGill University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for the invitation. Did the uh, premier's announcement surprise you? Uh, not really. I think that uh, they had said a few days ago that they will make an announcement. Um, I think the context, there is an international context to it that maybe people outside of Quebec are not as, as much aware of as people in Quebec, is that France um, announced the creation of a, a, a vaccine passport. Although the term passport is a bit misleading here because that's not for international travel. That's something this thing. This is really about like an immunization pass, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, vaccine pass that you can use to go to bars or restaurants and so forth. And France announced the creation of, uh, of one uh, in July. And after that, there was a big boost in the, the number of people who wanted to get vaccinated. And so I think there is a strategy here that just announcing the fact that there will be uh, this this health pass or passport, the vaccine passport, that uh, uh, will become a, a requirement to go to bars or restaurants. This is something that should push people who are maybe reluctant to get vaccinated but are considering it to really do it. And so that's the first part of the strategy. I think it's really to convince more and more people who are, have not been vaccinated yet that this is something they should do. Uh, because it will become really a, an inconvenience now. If you're not vaccinated, you won't be able to eat. I mean, we don't know the rules yet because they haven't been announced, but you might not be able to eat inside a restaurant or go to a bar or to a concert if you haven't been vaccinated. So that will create a strong incentive for people who have not been vaccinated yet to do so. The second aspect of it, of course, is the idea that once you have that in place, it might not be necessary if there is a strong fourth wave uh, to uh, really have more uh, public health restrictions in bars, restaurants, and beyond, because the people who will be allowed to go there uh, uh, will have been vaccinated. So there is a two two aspects to this strategy. We're, the first one is is about convincing people to get vaccinated now before the this health pass or this vaccine passport, whatever you call it, is put in place. And the second one is once it's in place, 
it might be easier to avoid stringent health restrictions, public health restrictions, like we had during the first, second, or third wave. I'm glad you brought the the France situation into play here, though, Professor, because I wondered about that when I, I saw the Premier's announcement yesterday about what, if any, impact that, that was going to have on that decision. Because as, as you had just alluded to, uh, the day after President Macron made the announcement that he was going to do it, it wasn't even in place yet, tens of thousands of, of uh, citizens in France all of a sudden registered for their vaccinations. So, so they obviously said, I don't want to be on the outside looking in. And, and that, I guess, had the desired effect. Uh, as we've talked about on the program over the last couple of days, New York Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio is enacting a very similar policy in New York City. If you don't have this passport or proof of vaccination, uh, you can't go to a Broadway show, you can't go to a ball game, you can't dine indoors, a number of things like this. And we're wondering just what kind of a, a result that's going to have uh, with the, the New Yorkers as to whether they're going to do that. But your point's well taken because all of the premiers, even the ones who don't seem to want to go down this road, the Premier Legault did, have all said that, look, we don't want another shutdown. We're all looking at rising cases, especially the Delta variant. This is, uh, I, I guess, on, on the Premier's part, really a proactive measure, isn't it, to say, I don't want to get to that point where hospitals are going to be overburdened and we have to start shutting things down again. Yes, and, and I think it would be, I think people in other provinces will look very carefully at Quebec. So are, will the vaccination rates in Quebec, you know, increase quite dramatically over the next few days or the next few weeks because of this announcement. If it has the same effect in France, that then in France, you know, and, and, and it's, it's the, the vaccination rates in Quebec spike up, then it might convince other premiers to consider that really seriously. Don't forget Manitoba uh, recently created the vaccination card, the COVID-19 vaccination card. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not used for bars and restaurants as of now, but they have already created the, the, the card to help people travel domestically without having to isolate. And I think it, it, it also to access some events where you have a large crowd. So I think Manitoba is already moving in that direction, um, not to the same level as Quebec. But again, we don't know the exact rules in Quebec. We don't know what they will be, um, but it, it, it will probably be quite stringent. And then it could, you know, lead other provinces like Manitoba to, to you know, move in that direction. Now, there are premiers who have said, we will not do that. Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, and so forth. But uh, if this becomes a trend in other provinces and it actually has positive effect in vaccination rates, then the pressure on them might increase to actually uh, at least consider doing this. Yeah, there's obviously a political circumstance uh, to what uh, Premier Kenny and Premier Ford are doing here. But uh, some of the other premiers, including, uh, well, Premier Rankin in Nova Scotia, said they were open-minded about this, which I guess underscores what you just mentioned, that uh, they're watching what's going to happen in Quebec and seeing. But you put that in place uh, against the national polling that came out yesterday that said the majority of Canadians are in favor of uh, some sort of uh, proof of vaccination. So it seems to me, at least at this point, as we're speaking today, Professor, uh, Premier Legault is one of the few premiers and one of the few public officials that seems to be on the right side of this issue as far as the public is concerned. Yes, you know, Legault has navigated the, the pandemic really well overall. That was a catastrophe at the beginning. They made quite a few mistakes and a lot of uh, older folks died in long-term care facilities, uh, like in other provinces, but in even more dramatic way. But since then, you know, they, they actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, they took measures really fast. And since then, they have really been quite proactive. And the third wave in Quebec was actually much less dramatic than in other provinces, in part because of the measures that uh, had been enacted. And, and now, yes, I think the, he might be a trendsetter here. That's an advantage of a federal system when you can experiment at the provincial level. And then if it works or it seems to work, then others might follow suit. Uh, I think now it's more likely other provinces will, will, will do this. And Manitoba also, with the, this COVID-19 vaccination card, is also helping to create a trend. So we'll see how far it goes. And some provinces might not do it at all, like I'm thinking about uh, uh, Ontario, but especially, I think, uh, Alberta on, under Jason Kenney. His leadership is already compromised. But the, the thing with Legault, though, is that he remains the most popular, one of the most popular premiers in the country. So he can afford, you know, this type of risk and doing something like this. And as you said, in fact, it's not that risky because public opinion data uh, suggests that uh, uh, there is a majority of people who, who support this, but there are people who are very strongly against this. And they will protest, you will have pro people in the street over this, and you know, 
been the case since the beginning of the pandemic when we enact new public uh, health measures. Uh, so these people will be very strongly mobilized against this. But anti-vaxxers will be anti-vaxxers, and, and this is something that, they, of course, they, 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 uh, they will uh, really, uh, really scream, <laughs> scream over. But I think that François Legault here might be uh, setting a, a trend. So people should watch, and I'd, all the provincial leaders, other provincial leaders will watch what's happening in Quebec. Public health experts, it's, now it will become a, some form of laboratory. You know, in the U.S., mm-hmm. the states are laboratories of democracy, and we are in a pandemic, and, and provinces are also laboratories uh, in a way, and they experiment, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So we'll see what happens in Quebec. It's, it's interesting to see that kind of feedback. And, and you're, I mean, the anti-vaxxers are the anti-vaxxers. You're probably not going to change anybody's mind there. But I would think that what the premier is trying to do is reach out to those who are unsure and say, well, we just haven't gotten around to getting it done yet, but maybe this will be the catalyst for them to do that. But uh, I'm interested to see the uh, the reaction that you're getting from uh, from the private sector in this, too. Uh, Olivier Bordeaux, who is a, a vice president with Restaurants Canada for the Quebec area, uh, is supportive of this. And I guess that goes back to the point about they don't want another lockdown. They don't want more restrictions. We don't want to go back to where we were five, six months ago, and, and they look at this as a proactive step to try to avoid that. Absolutely. I think uh, in Quebec, the, so far, the feedback from uh, businesses uh, uh, has been quite positive about this announcement, but again, the devil is in the detail. We'll see how this uh, vaccine passport will actually work. Uh, you know, it has to, they have to create the card and do all this, and, and uh, he, he, we, we don't know any of the details yet. So I think people will be looking at that, the people in Quebec, businesses, because they are directly affected by this. An issue for them is that they will have to enforce this, right? So what happens if someone comes to your you know, restaurant or bar, doesn't have the card, uh, the, 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 the passport, uh, and then wants to get in, then you have to call the police? I mean, this may, may create some issues, but that's the case with uh, all public health measures that uh, we, uh, at least some of the public health measures we saw in the past. But businesses will become enforcers here. Um, um, and, and so that could create so, some, uh, some tensions on the ground. But, you know, uh, I, I think that there is uh, relatively broad support for that uh, among the population and within the, the private sector. So I think that François Legault took a calculated risk here. It's not crazy what he did. Uh, what he did is, you know, there is some risk involved, but we have the experience in France, but also Israel uh, adopted the uh, uh, vaccination passport internally and so forth. So it's not the, f- and you mentioned New York City. So I think it's a growing trend and, and Quebec is ahead, ahead of the curve, but we'll see if it, how it actually works concretely once this is put in place. And, and the, taking a different approach to it here, aren't they, Professor? They're, when the debate first started, it was, okay, can government actually mandate vaccinations? And there's a very contentious argument about that. But what they seem to be doing here is, is, is taking the approach to saying, okay, we can't mandate it, but we are saying if you choose not to, these are the consequences. Uh, and, and I think people are a lot more comfortable with that because those who say, well, it's my choice, okay, you've still got your choice, but this is what you're going to have to put up with. This is what you're not going to be able to do because of that. Uh, and a lot of those restrictions are already in place. You, know, you, you can't walk into a restaurant with no shirt or no shoes. They'll say, you know, you're not going to be served. Yeah. Uh, so this is really just an extension of policies that have already been in place uh, for some time. Yeah, or wearing a mask in yeah. the restaurant when you walk, uh, for, you walk uh, beyond your table and so forth. So I think, yes, I, people are now used to, some of these restrictions, so having to show an, a specific ID or piece of paper to to get in, I, you know, it's probably less of an issue for many people than having compulsory vaccination, so a mandate. Uh, although this might still come later in Quebec or elsewhere, and you know, we are talking about that for especially specific businesses are moving that direction. The federal government too, uh, for for some uh, their own uh, employees, it seems, and so forth. So I think we'll see also uh, uh, compulsory vaccination moving forward. But you're right that what Legault is doing now uh, is less dramatic than that. Uh, and you're right also that it's not targeting anti-vaxxers because they will not get vaccinated anyway, most of them at least. But, yeah, you have a lot of people who are on the fence, and this might be the nudge that they need to get vaccinated. And if it happens, then that's good news. And even before the, the vaccine passport is implemented, it could have a positive effect. 
It's it's early. It's only been about 24 hours or so since the premier made this announcement. But uh, in the initial reaction, what what are you hearing, Professor? Is is the public on side with this? Well, you know, I I think it's the the people who, who tend to support public health measures, and there are a lot in Quebec are, are tend to be quite supportive of this. But there are people who uh, who uh, tend to oppose public health measures, so they will oppose this. So it's the same. Uh, the usual suspects uh, uh, oppose the. This in, in the name of uh, and, and there are leg- legitimate concerns about privacy and, mm-hmm. and 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 so forth. I think we should not discard the concerns. We should address them. Uh, but this will also be important to to watch when uh, we actually uh, know what the, the the actual implementation will will look like. So <clears throat> we don't know how how it will work. And so again, our, what will be done to protect privacy? Uh, is very important here. So we should not discard these concerns just to say, yes, it will be helpful in terms of creating an incentive for people to get vaccinated to avoid lockdowns in the future. Uh, you have to balance these potential advantages, rewards, with uh, um, really a situation that's, uh, um, that's you know, worrying in terms of privacy. So we have to address uh, uh, the concerns uh, that that people are, are are voicing, especially concerning privacy, because it's a serious matter. Sure, it is. I guess the other barometer that has to be looked at here as we're evaluating this going forward is is the number of new cases of the Delta variant. Is this actually going to curtail uh, the rise that we've seen in the last little while? That's that's going to be an interesting uh, balance and an interesting assessment. Yes, absolutely. So as I said, all eyes will be on Quebec. Uh, first of all, people will want to know whether uh, vaccination rates are really increasing faster than expected because of this announcement of the creation of a vaccine passport. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, people will watch uh, the, the implementation process. They will want to know how it will actually work on the ground and see uh, how businesses are a- adapt to this and how ordinary people adapt. So I think that, this, as I said, Quebec is now becoming a laboratory for this uh, this uh, vaccination passport internally, and and uh, we will uh, be monitoring this. Health of public health experts, of course, will be watching journalists and, and uh, public officials all across the country. So that's really interesting. That's an advantage of federalism to be able to do that. Well, we'll be watching as well just to see how this goes and uh, who actually may just decide to jump on and, and follow the lead of the, uh, the premier. Uh, as always, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you. Have a great weekend. You too. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Take care. That's uh, Professor Daniel Bailon from uh, Miguel University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very controversial issue going on at Hamilton City Hall. No, 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 this is not about LRT. That's still going on, too, and has yet to be settled. But it's uh, an urban boundary expansion, and it's... Uh, it's not really a complicated situation. We're growing, and every city is growing, and every city is going to have to make decisions about their urban boundaries. Uh, you know, as the population expands, and they're talking about a proposed expansion in Hamilton of, uh, well, upwards of 820,000 people by the year 2051, they got to go somewhere. They have to live someplace. And what city staff are proposing right now is a, an expansion of the urban boundary to accommodate those people, and uh, not everybody is uh, on side with that. As a matter of fact, they've been vocal, very vocal opposition to this at a number of public meetings, and uh, they would actually did a survey about this too. So where is this going to go, and what are the consequences? Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAndy, who's going to talk to us about this. Uh, Larry, first of all, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Well, thank you, Bill. My pleasure. You know, this is not new to you, I know, that because uh, I can remember even when you and I were on city council way back in the day, I remember more than one uh, meeting at the old Stony, old Stony Creek City Hall on Jones Road there uh, about some urban expansions, about some extensions, some redesignations there. Uh, and uh, I know you still have the battle scars from some of those, as I do, from some of those public meetings. Uh, there's no simple solution to this. And, and boy, you, no matter which way they go on this, Larry, somebody's going to get awfully angry at them. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It is controversial, uh, and it's been made more controversial by council, I think, than it needed to be, uh, because they have um, um, uh, entered into a process uh, that has made it much more political and far less scientific than it needed to be. And, uh, and of no, course, may explain uh, that. I listen to, just so well, I, our listeners know where they lay the land here. Excuse yeah, the bad pun. So, so, so the, the yes, indeed. So the, the the fact that they've issued this survey, 
which is being interpreted as a referendum, has forced people not to analyze the consequences of doing one or the other, but rather picking sides. And of course, those who are against any kind of development, any kind of growth, have framed it as you either save farmland or you help the developers. And, uh, and you know, they've been very good, very clever at putting that out. So you see lawn signs. It's like a political campaign. Lawn signs saying save farmland. And, and of course, the other side, uh, which is the, uh, the development side, uh, has vested interest, which means that people are going to be suspicious because they think that they're only trying to look after their bottom line and their pocketbooks. And there is a little bit of truth on both sides of that, but it's been exacerbated by the great divide rather than the analysis of what does it mean in order to, to, to freeze the boundary? What does it really mean to open it up? And so staff has done an analysis. And you're right. We, we started this process, in fact, when you were, and I were both on council with something called grid, grids, yep. growth related uh, development where where you try to figure integrated out, development, yeah, yeah. Where you try to figure out, you know, where are you going to have people live as population grows? Where are they going to work? So you have to set aside some some lands for uh, industrial development, and where are they going to play? Where where are the institutional, the schools, the parks, and so on? And so uh, the staff has come to the conclusion that what would be best for the city, and they've based it on land use planning principles. Not, not politics and not emotion. And they've said that limited expansion of the boundary while providing for infill situations is the best way to go. But of course now it's been thrown into the political sphere. And so you've got these two divides that are suspicious of what staff has said, uh, because they suspect that staff has been manipulated maybe. Uh, and they've framed it, as I said before, you either say of farmland or or you help the developers and that's the choice that we've got the problem with that of course is that if you freeze the boundary and this is the argument that can be made on the side of limited expansion of the boundary if you freeze the boundary you make those lands within the boundary now where you have to accommodate these two or three hundred thousand people over the next 30 years or so you made that land much more valuable which drives up the cost of housing and so these same folks that are against any kind of development are also the ones who are complaining about the fact that housing is far too expensive, which I agree with. I think housing sure is, is far yeah. too expensive. So if, if, you, if you limit the stock on which you can build housing, you're driving up the, the, the cost. So you can't have it both ways. The other problem with the argument of freezing it is that everybody likes intensification. I've had you know discussions with my own friends who say, well, you know, you should, you know, build everywhere you can before you expand the boundary. Everybody likes that kind of intensification unless it's happening in your neighborhood. And we've seen examples of that, Bill, where people uh, in Stony Creek, where, near where I live, where people are objecting to these 25, 30-story high-rises uh, that have been approved, you know, decades ago, but are now uh, imminent in terms of their building, they don't want to see that because it's too uh, in intensive development. And so consequently, uh, you know, more traffic, more people, uh, and that, that's problematic. We saw a small 19-unit uh, intensification development on Mohawk Road in the west end of Upper Hamilton where people around there saying, I didn't move here to have that uh, next door to me. I moved here because of the single-family homes. So you're setting yourself up for these kinds of conflicts uh, if you don't allow for some limited expansion of the urban boundary. And then, of course, there's the whole argument that nobody's made yet uh, around the pandemic. We're being told that this pandemic that's still here is going to be here again. Uh, who knows when, but it's going to be here again. And we've seen problems in high rises more than in, in areas where people live apart from each other. Uh, in high rises, why are there problems? Because sometimes elevators break down, because you congregate uh, more closely, uh, you live more densely uh, in, in these areas. And do we want to create these kinds of developments into the future only, or do you want to have some kind of a balance? 
So it's an interesting topic. We'll see where it goes. Well, and there's so many factors in this, and, and I know that there are some people listening to this right now that are going to think, hey, boy, this sort of reminds me of the huge debate that went on for about 45 years here about whether or not to build the Red Hill Expressway. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's not coincidental, by the way, that some of the same players are involved in this same one. Players. Uh, and well, some of the same arguments are being made. And, and you're right, they're making it a black and white issue. You know, don't build the expressway because you're going to ruin the environment. Well, what about economic growth? What about this sort of thing? And yeah. uh, and you know, those have to be balanced. The thing is, and here's the thing I'm concerned I've got, uh, and I think a lot of people share this right now, whether side you're of this issue you're on, is, is two things that you cannot argue here. First of all, the cost of housing is skyrocketing and making it unaffordable. Uh, you know, I talked to Tim Hudak from the, the Real Estate Association in Ontario, and he says, you know, that's the, the created this phenomenon. It's drive to you can buy. Uh, you can't afford to live in Hamilton anymore. Couldn't afford to live in Toronto. Now you can't afford to live in Hamilton. We got people that are moving to the East Coast now and simply saying we yeah. can't afford to live anywhere in southern Ontario. Uh, yeah. There are people that are simply going to say, look at, I don't want an alleyway home. I don't want a high rise. I've got three kids. Uh, I know I want a backyard. I want to be able to do some of this stuff. And you can't do it. I guess I'm going someplace else. So you're running that risk. So no matter which way these guys go on this, there are going to be some severe consequences that Hamilton's going to have to deal with. Well, and, and that's that's the uh, that's the uh, other uh, great point to remember as well, because we're not isolated. I mean, we're talking about Hamilton's urban boundary, but if we freeze our urban boundary, do you think that those who are interested in, in either owning homes or building homes are, are going to say, "Well, I guess we have to give up on Hamilton"? They're just going to move. You know, to the, to the Brantford area or the Niagara area, where a lot of this development is happening, and so you're going to exacerbate the the transportation issues uh, and 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 as well as the costs in other areas. It's like the green belt. You know, uh, the the province had a great idea. Let's protect lands, uh, and so what happened? People simply leapfrog the green belt and developed anyway. So staff's recommendation, and again, I come back to what is staff saying? What are the professionals who've analyzed this saying? They are essentially saying moderate expansion and infill development. In other words, they're saying do both. Provide infills to accommodate uh, growth uh, to as you know a reasonable percentage as possible, but you're going to need to expand uh, moderately in order to also allow for the development of homes. And that, to me, seems like the practical thing to do. But, you know, um, I don't know how many people have responded to the survey. I certainly did. Um, uh, but I know that the anti-development folks have been active. They've organized this like a political campaign. Uh, they've organized it ward by ward. Uh, they've encouraged their people because I saw some of the emails uh, to uh, to make sure that they uh, filled out the survey against any expansion. And my guess is that uh, you know the votes will be in their favor, or at least the survey votes will be in their favor. Now, whether council will adhere to that or do it differently is another story. And what will the province do? Because the province has a role in this as well in terms of approving the final outline will they allow this to happen yeah this reminds me of a debate, uh, and you're familiar with this, and I think many of our listeners do, because we talked about it extensively. It went on in Burlington about high-rises within the urban uh, boundary. Uh, and uh, there was a huge pushback, as you recall, Larry, about a couple of high-rise proposals that were being uh, proposed for right downtown near Burlington City Hall. It probably cost the, the previous mayor his job in the yeah. in the subsequent election because people got so outraged about this. And, and again, you're right, the province had to step in and say, well, this is the rule, guys. You've got to adhere to this. And, and that's the other thing. I think we need to remind our listeners about this is provincially mandated. This is not just a, an arbitrary decision the city council decided they wanted to tackle. Uh, you've got to come up with a plan uh, because they, they, we're going to grow here, and you've got to determine exactly how this is going to happen. And uh, so, council they can't kick this down the road. They're going to have to make a decision on this. No, abs absolutely, we'll have to make a decision on that. And and not only not only is it mandated by the provincial government. Uh, it makes sense that it's mandated because uh, you don't want to wait 30 years to decide what you're going to do with the influx of people that are coming. You've got to plan for that. 
So where do they go in a situation like this? Uh, we're told that they probably will make a decision sometime in the fall, uh, and and whatever that time people is going to be like, I guess is is you know something that these guys are going to have to make a decision on. Uh, but is there recourse just to go back to your municipal experience? I mean, if they vote to do whatever it is that they're going to do, uh, can you appeal this uh, to a, a, a board? You know, there's usually some appeal process right now, or is this going to be carved in stone as soon as they make a decision on it? Well, it, it depends on, on, and I'm not familiar with the current rules in terms of the uh, province, whether the province can step in, can needs to ratify what council does. But I don't think whatever decision is made in the fall will end the debate. Uh, it'll probably simply intensify it. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see just what goes on. By the way, I know that, uh, just as an aside here, uh, breaking news. I know you've attended the odd soccer game in your time, Larry. Uh, Canada has just won the gold medal in women's uh, soccer uh, in, I, on penalty I, kicks, three to two. I had to keep myself from screaming. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't hear it in the background. Anyway, so another gold medal for Canada. That's great news. But the, 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 back to our issue now, <laughs> uh, which is a, a pressing issue. And it's as you said, it's not just a Hamilton issue. This is going on. London's going to have to make decisions about urban boundary and about how we're going to grow uh, because there are ramifications to this. I mean, that's one of the elements of this argument that I know was in the staff report. Uh, if you are having urban boundary expansion, if they decide to go that way or you staff recommendations of, of, of a little bit of both here. Uh, you've got, you know, what about serving transit? What about servicing the, any development that's going to go on there? Uh, there's, there's a lot to happen here. So this is, it's not a black and white decision. Uh, I'm glad you brought up what we did on city council many, many years ago, growth-related integrated development, which basically means you have to consider both options here, uh, both the environment and growth. And and they're, they're not mutually exclusive. There's got to be some, not necessarily compromise, but some way to understand that, yes, we have to look after environmental issues, uh, which I thought we did, for instance, with the expressway project. It was, you know, the, the people that were opposed to that uh, said, you know, you're going to kill the environment. Well, you know, David Crombie, of course, the former Toronto mayor and former cabinet minister, uh, basically came in and said, here's the compromise, and there's probably no more of, of an environmentalist than David Crombie, and that was the way to find it here. But he had to almost be an arbiter in this situation. Uh, I don't think that there's that that's not a possibility here. This is, this is just on city council they've got the report they've got the input from the public on this uh you got to make a decision which way they, they're going to go on it yeah they're and, and that'll be controversial as well because they're going to have to weigh the science meaning the staff analysis and uh, what will be the public will as defined by this uh, survey and the results of the survey now, some of the councillors have said, well, you know, but it's, uh, the survey is, is slanted towards uh, special interests, and do we take it uh, seriously enough? Well, you should have known that, quite frankly. You've got to take it seriously, because you should have known what was going to happen before you began this process. And so to sort of pull back and say, well, we really didn't mean it, wouldn't be fair to the process that they've initiated. On the other hand, you got to weigh the two, and you got to come up with a decision. You're going to have to be Solomon-like, uh, I think, in terms of uh, making a judicious decision. I'm just hoping, and you're right, people uh, will be upset, especially those who want no development, who are anti-growth, who, uh, to some extent, uh, don't care whether there are jobs connected to all of that building as well. Um, and you're going to have to, and they're going to be upset if the decision goes against them. But I'm hoping that council is brave enough, mature enough, intelligent enough to analyze things and do something not for political expediency, but for the good of this community. And, uh, and uh, that's my hope. We'll see what happens. Because of, as you mentioned, the consequences that are involved in this, and as I say, I've tried to talk to people on both sides of this. As a matter of fact, we had David Crumby on the program just a, a week or two ago, I guess, talking about uh, these very same sorts of things and the implications of it. But we've also talked to people in the real estate business because they're concerned about the rising cost of housing in this community. And the other element that we've always talked about that I know the staff report addressed, and I guess some people don't really want to hear this part of it, is not just affordability, but there has to be what kind of housing stock are you going 
going to build. Because uh, the alternatives for intensification are, as some people have mentioned, high-rise, first of all, to go up instead of out, uh, to use these laneways, and we have some of those in downtown Hamilton, build little tiny houses, not necessarily the sort of thing that families could live in, though. Uh, some people just want the backyard. They want a split level. They want a backyard. They want a swing set in the back and a park in the neighborhood. Uh, and that usually is not something that can be accommodated within the, the urban boundary here, unless you want to buy an existing house. But those are just about priced out of the market for most people now. So it's 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 not an easy decision, and it's a very complicated decision. And uh, I, I know it's also become very emotional. I was just listening to some of the comments of some of the people on council, Larry, uh, that they, they've just kind of dug in their heels, and, and they're talking about this on a philosophical level, which is their choice, I suppose. They're the elected representatives. They can address it any way they want. But they have to understand that there are some long-term consequences if they decide not to do this, and uh, and it could be detrimental to the city in some ways. It's one thing to say, okay, we saved uh, this, the city from saved it from itself, but what are the applications? Are we going to start to shrink again as a city? You know, are we going to get it landlocked? Are people going to start looking to live someplace else? Uh, you know, does that mean businesses are going to say, well, look, it, we're going to go to another area now instead of Hamilton? Uh, we, we, these are all things that have to be part of this debate. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right uh, about that. And one hopes that, um, you know, councillors again will be uh, mature enough to, to uh, take all of that information and, and uh, a factor in the various aspects of it and make the right decision at the end. So in my mind, it's, it's either unfettered development, which we don't want, absolutely no development, which I think would be bad for the city, or a compromise which would allow for some expansion uh, and development and infill uh, using the lands that we currently have. Remember, when staff analyzed this, they looked at the stock. What have we got and can all of we that we have accommodate what's coming in the next 25 to 30 years? And their conclusion is, no, we need a little bit of expansion in order to accommodate it all, or there's going to be great disruption to what we already have, and we may not be able to accommodate everybody that's coming and may force people to leave, to, to, to go elsewhere if that's the case. So, you know, the practical, moderate perspective is one that I would be advocating for if I were on council. But given that neither you or I are, we have to see what our city leaders say. Larry Danny, former Hamilton mayor, I'll let you go now. I know you want to grab your Canadian flag and ride your Segway up and down King Street and down Stony Creek uh, to celebrate. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate this, Larry. Thank you. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.